Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, giving us the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are the great I am, the only I am. We are the sheep of your pasture. We are the ones that depend completely and entirely upon your grace and your revelation of yourself in your word. We live in a, a desperate times. It appears that things may get worse. Indeed, they will before they get better. So we pray that you will help us to focus because we need to have that sense of security, that confidence, that courage that only you can give us. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in Joshua. We're in chapter 1. The last area of Scripture that we were covering was verses 16 through 18. You might go there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can look up here. We have it on the board. <laughs> That's okay. There's worse things that can happen. Yeah, you can you can still see. Um. Oh, okay. Uh, deacons make a note. We need a little change instead of strings on our fans. Are, are we warm? Okay. Is the fan going over here? Do y'all want it going over there? No, some are saying yes and some are going like this. Typical. Okay, Joshua, chapter 1, verse 16. They answered Joshua saying, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, we will obey you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words... And all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Well, there's a lot in that one verse or those couple of verses there. It has to do with being submissive, submissive to God's legitimate delegated authority. We kind of touched the water with this last time with regards to Miriam who was Moses' Moses's, uh, sister and her brother Aaron challenged Moses' authority. And because of it, Miriam was struck with leprosy. Oh, what a horrible disease that was. But in the graciousness of God, he heard Moses' prayer. The fact is that they were going against Moses and Moses still 
implored God to remove this horrible curse on Miriam for challenging his delegated authority. So kind of brings up the issue of recognizing authority. You know, any parent that rears their children and does not teach them authority orientation has failed. I don't care what kind of grade they make, how smart they are or anything else. What's really important is to teach them how to live in a world where authority is ubiquitous. You cannot get away from authority because God has designed it to be so. And so if you teach your children very young how to be oriented to authority, you're doing them a great service because when they get into the world, if they've been pampered, if, if they've been uh, taught that they can do whatever they want, then they're going to have a rude awakening because the world will crush them. The world doesn't care whether your little darling is sensitive or not. The world will teach them the hard way. And you can start out by teaching them uh, the way early on. And so you're making it much easier for them in life if you start early. Now, this verse has to do with making a claim that we will do all that you say. I'm going to be obedient. And that's easier to say than it is to do. Isn't it, ladies? I don't know how much they still use the terms or the when, when they're doing a wedding ceremony, when it comes to the vows, the vows for the woman's part, I will promise to love, cherish, and obey my husband. I know when I do weddings, that's always said. And I've had people shocked. They've even come to me afterwards at a reception. I can't believe you said that. What? Obey? And this was a, hus a husband talking to me. And his wife, we were in a line. The wife was behind me. And he says, I said, well, you know, that's what marriage is all about. That's what the Bible says. And about that time, he got a tap on the shoulder. His wife figured that he had heard enough and it was time for, her, for him to mind his own business. This is an issue that needs to be addressed over and over again because we are rebellious by nature. And even though we have these, this, this is actually the second generation saying that they are going to obey Joshua just as they did Moses, uh, there was a problem. We're going to see that they didn't do it all completely the way that they said they were going to do it. Now, <clears throat> children are commanded to obey their parents. If you want a reference point, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. I taught that last Wednesday to the young people and made sure they wrote it down in their notes. And I also pointed out that it does not say children obey your parents as long as you agree with them and as long as they're fair. It just says do it. Now, it's not easy to obey sometimes. And 
the wife can make it much easier on the children if she leads by example. The wife will teach her children how to be respectful and obedient by the way she responds to her husband's authority. Just little things that I might make a note of. Wives should not be telling their husbands what to do. That's disrespectful. He's the boss. He's in charge. And it is showing your children that it, well, actually it confuses them. The, the, the wife should uh, strive to show the children and tell the children that daddy's in charge. Not only by her words, but also by her actions. I can remember when my daughter Allie was still um, still young and we would go out to eat at a restaurant. And without fail, every time when we were leaving from the uh, restaurant, uh, Carrie would tell me, thanks for the, for the uh, dinner, hon. You know, Thank you, sweetie, for taking me out to eat. And immediately after that, Allie would say, Thank you, Daddy, for taking us out. Showing appreciation and respect. Some of you are looking at me like, never heard of such a thing. It's got to, listen, one of the hardest things to do ever on this planet is to rear children. And you have to be consistent. They're going to want to do what they want to do. And so you're going to have to start at a very early age that just saying it doesn't cut it. You have to teach them how to be respectful. They have to learn how to respect authority. One of the ways to do that when I was younger, well, even to this day, is to say yes, sir, and no, sir, to elders. And it's, a, it's unfortunate that today that has all but gone by the wayside. We even have some children calling their parents by their first name. Hey, how you doing, Bob? Talking to their dad? If I said, hey, how you doing, Chuck, to my dad, it'd take him a week to find my head. It just wouldn't happen. I think a good idea, especially for the really younger ones, is every time that you address your child, say the mother is going to say, Susie, and teach them the, the automatic response is, yes, Mommy. First of all, you find out you've got their attention, they've heard you, and they've already said yes. Yes, Mommy. Whatever it is, they've already said yes. And some of you may think, well, that's impossible. It's not impossible. It takes dedication consistency, and to do that it takes love and being willing to go through a battle, maybe more than one battle. I can't overemphasize the importance of this. When we have people in authority, they must be alert as to signs of insubordination. And that can show up very subtly, sometimes not so subtle, but when it does, 
You have to be alert to it and deal with it. For instance, I hope all you parents play with your children. I love to see daddies get down on the floor and the kids jump on his back and they're riding the horse and, oh, they're having a big time. That is great. That's good. But you have to be careful that the bounds are still there because they can get carried away and do things that are disrespectful. And so you have to, even in playtime, show them this is acceptable, this isn't acceptable. And it's the same thing with regards to authority in any, in any delegated authority, whether it's parents, whether it's the husband, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a coach, whether it's the police, whether it's a pastor. It doesn't matter. You have to be on guard and not allow the insubordination to continue because usually it will get out of bounds pretty quickly. And what that means is that you are, uh, you're, you are alert to it. You know, it's, it's fine to be chummy and to play and tease. However, there's an old saying that says, familiarity breeds contempt. You always have to have that, that image in your subordinate's mind of respect. Now, I know that some of you ladies think, well, <clears throat> I understand what you're saying, but I'm smarter than my husband. What does that have to do with anything? All it means is that you're a better helpmate doesn't mean that you challenge his authority because you're smarter than he is. If you're complaining that you're smarter than him, how smart are you? You're the one who chose him. <laughs> and what can you do now? Encourage him. Help him be a better leader. You see, the husband has the authority because God gave it to him. And the woman is not designed to carry that load. And that is not a popular message these days. And those of you who actually employ this may be not only looked upon as a kook, but also as some kind of weirdo. But that's okay. That's how far our culture has strayed away from the way things ought to be. One of the worst things that parents can do is argue in front of their children. I'm not going to say that you shouldn't argue. I had a lady one time that told me she had been married for 40 years and never had an argument with her husband. And I thought, where did you live in America and he lived in Europe? What was the deal? There was no phones? That's absurd. Go into private, not in front of the children. The woman has to be very careful to protect that respect for her husband. Yeah, but he doesn't deserve it. Show me the Scripture where it says you don't respect your husband unless he deserves it. None of us deserve it. But if you want a happy marriage, that's where it starts. If you want further information on that, there's the latest book out there is... Uh, now you're married. I mean, you're married. Now what? A lot of people don't know 
Now what? So it's much easier to, to profess obedience than to actually carry it out. Now, in our Scripture, it says in verse 17, I'll bring it back up again for a moment. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Now, that might be a little confusing to some because the first generation didn't obey Moses. What did they do? They chided and they complained. and they, every, every time Moses was instructed to do something, he'd go to the people and he would tell them, and they would give him a hard time. But this is the second generation. All of those had their bones scattered all over the wilderness, and now we're dealing with the second generation, and they did a better job. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, if you saw that every person that defied God and was haughty towards Him wound up being dead, then that would give you kind of a clue. God takes this authority business very seriously. It's okay to tease and play with authority as long as it continues to be respectful. When you're teasing someone, this applies to whether there's authority or not. When you're teasing someone and no one is laughing, it's not funny. And most of the time, subordinates do not like their head, their authority, to be disrespected. So we have to keep that in mind. It's not that the... The authority isn't going to make mistakes. They always do. But there's still the authority. But we have one other, one other thing here that, that is interesting in this Scripture. Just as we obey Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as He was with Moses. Now, this is not unqualified obedience. When it says... We will do all things. We will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he, as he was with Moses. That means that as long as Joshua was being faithful to the Lord, being then the Lord was with him, they were obligated and obliged to obey him. But if he got off course, then there would be problems with the o- obedience. Uh, there's a verse in Jeremiah that talks about um, a king that was one of the most vicious, uh, horrible king, and it says that God held the people responsible for what he did. So when you have someone that's in authority and they get way out of bounds, then it goes against the norm and you have to refuse to obey such things. For instance, if a, if a husband told his wife to go commit a crime or something immoral, she has to answer to the higher authority and would have to um, not obey that. And so that was a little provision in here. Um, then we go to the verse 18. And in verse 18, anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words... And all that you command him shall be put to death. Then it says, only be strong and courageous. 
This was not an idle warning. This was actually carried out. In Joshua chapter 7, there is a man by the name of Achan. And Achan disobeyed God. God said, when you go into these Canaanites and these, these uh, unbelieving nations who were pagan, he said, when you go in and you take that city, you don't take anything for yourself. Don't take any spoils of war, period. Okay, they understood that. God is very clear. He never beats around the bush. It was clear what they were not to do. Well, this one guy, Achan, could not resist. Uh, there were some clothes there, some silver and gold, and so he, he put it under his coat. He takes it to his tent. He digs a hole, and he hides it there so that uh, he, can, he can be more wealthy. But God knew it. And so when Israel, the Israelites went up against Ai for the first time, they were driven back. They failed. And Joshua was bent out of shape. He said, I, I don't understand, Lord, what's going on. And the Lord informed him, someone has disobeyed me. And you're not going to have any victory until you take care of this issue. And as we find out, uh, God told him how to sniff out the, the culprit. And he, when he was found, he admitted what he had done. And they went and found the evidence and the people stoned him to death along with his family. Evidently, his family was in cahoots with him. They were a part of it. And then they burned the bodies. Now, would you say that God is serious about obedience? You know, we have a, a rebellious nature, every one of us. And anybody that sits there and thinks, well, I'm a pretty obedient person. I've got all this done. I've got this down. There's no problem with me. Well, just wait for the right circumstances. All of us, when we were born, I guess, were nice little babies. I have to admit, I'll just be candid with you because most of you know it anyway. I think most bug babies are ugly. I think they're hideous looking. I'm sorry. They're bald-headed, most of them. And they're, yeah, they're, well, when they're born, oh, man. When I saw my daughter the first time, I thought she was a lizard. I thought, what in the world is this? Are you sure that one is mine? You know, that's when they, you know, I had to go to the stork room. You couldn't be in there with the wife at that time. And they would just hold them up at the glass. And she was contorting. And I thought, oh, mercy, what am I going to do now? They put her in an incubator for uh, two or three days. And everybody said, aren't you anxious to see her? I said, oh, yeah, I'm really glad. To, I want her. And I was dreading it when they brought her into me. And then when I saw her, she was an exception to the rule. She was absolutely gorgeous. All other babies are ugly. Mine is beautiful. I'm serious. I'll show you pictures. Probably even Adolf Hitler when he was a little baby. They, oh, look at little Adolf. Isn't he cute? But we have a rebellious nature. It's our nature to do what we want to do and connive, manipulate, do anything we can to get our way. And so this, this was a, a very serious command. 
it was an obligation for them to continue to be obedient. And then the last part of this in verse 18 is important also. Only be strong and courageous. Let me tell you something. Confidence and courage is contagious. And this will make the difference in being obedient and being a good leader. You do it because the Lord says this is your job. When you obey because you recognize the Lord has commanded you to obey, to submit to the authority that He has delegated, it makes it much easier. Because you're not obeying because the person deserves it, because they're so smart or because they do things right. You're obeying them because God says do it. And with the leaders, with the husbands, with the coaches, and all those that have delegated authority... It makes it easier for them to stand firm when everyone is against them when they recognize that God gives them the authority and they are to use it. Colonel R.B. Thiem, my mentor, pastor of Baraka Church in Houston where I was ordained, said something I have never forgotten. He says, if you don't use your authority, you will lose it. Too many authorities are trying to be popular instead of being respected. I'm not talking about being a dictator. I'm not talking about uh, being some tough guy. If you have someone in your, under your authority that is out of line, you need to take care of it. But do it in a way that is appropriate. If your wife has gotten out of line with you and disrespects you in some way, you don't, you don't. Dress her down in front of the kids. You don't dress her down at all. You take her to the side. And you, and you help her to understand lovingly but firmly. This is not good. This will not stand. The Lord is not happy when this happens. It's undermining the, what we're trying to accomplish with our children. So you have to be strong and you have to be courageous. And that's easy to do when you know that you're doing things that the Lord commands you to do. There are some men that have lost it. Their house is not in order. And they're afraid to put it back in order. Let me tell you something. If you husbands are afraid of your wives, don't think that they don't know it. The thing to do is to take charge. I'm not talking about being a drill sergeant. I'm talking about saying I am responsible for the way this house is to be run and I am going to start setting policies and we are going to do things the right way. And you know what that means sometimes? If it's gone so far, it might mean that the wife rebels and leaves him. If that happens, that is on her head, not the husband's. It's not too late to change things, whether it be children who are disrespectful or a wife who has lost respect for her husband. It's time for the husbands to step up and be strong and courageous and take responsibility for the things that are not happening right and start setting policies and doing things for things to be as they should be under the Lord.
We live in a culture and a society where women rule the day. I couldn't believe it. I was watching the news the other day, and there was nothing but women. There was a, a the, the the what they call the anchor man. Well, this was an, this wasn't an anchor woman. It was a it was the news talker. That was a woman. They were talking to someone in the a Congress. Was a woman. The aide was a was a woman. The cops that came in. It had to do with this uh, Arizona thing. The cops that came in. Were, everybody was women. I said, what happened to the men? Where are the men? That's the society we live in. It's very acceptable for women to take charge, to demean their husbands, even laugh about it. Now, I know this isn't a popular subject, but I don't give a hoot. The Word of God is what it is. And if this steps on your toes, then this is a sign you need to start making some changes. We all do. Achan lost his life, his whole family, stoned to death, and then burned upon God's commission to do so. Does God take it seriously? Sometimes being a good leader is a lonely place. But you always have God. And you always, ladies, when you obey your husbands because the Lord tells you to, husbands, when you love your wives and you are firm, and you're courageous, and you are in charge, you have God's blessing. You can count on it. That's what you can take to the bank. I don't care what the circumstances are or the situation. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. There is so much in the first verse of Joshua. I am so glad that the Lord nearly imposed upon me to teach the book of Joshua. I know when I go to the Old Testament, a book like when I went to 1 Kings, I get the same look from everybody. Huh? 1 Kings? Oh. That just reminds me of something. You hear me say, huh? I was going to say this about the children, and I'm not, I nearly forgot it, but I'm going to put it now. I, didn't, I don't go here, but I'm going to say it anyway. It goes back in your minds when I was talking about the children and saying, yes, sir, and no, sir. Yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, that type of thing. Which would you rather have? A child that when you ask a question says, huh? Did you hear what I, do you know what to do? Huh? You need to do so-and-so. Yeah. That's, the, that's what we have today in our society. And the youngsters have so many wires hanging out of their ears and their pockets and everywhere else, they don't even know how to talk anymore. They just text. And I, I'm in an area I don't know anything about, this texting business. But I bet there's a lot of abbreviation and a lot of bad spelling in the texting thing. If it's anything like they communicate, it's down to a few grunts and groans. 
I mean, how do you take <coughs> just a bunch of sounds? One, one reason is because in the schools they're not teaching. Memorizing some facts until Friday and taking a test is not teaching. They're not teaching youngsters how to think. It was that, it's been that way a long time. Even way back in the dark ages when I was in school, they would say, like history, you have all these dates and uh, this country produces wheat and a barley. And so-and-so, so-and-so. Okay, and you try to get it all in there. Remember, until Friday, take the test next week. You could ask a question about that. Wouldn't even know what the country, where it is, what it is, what it's about, or anything else. We have failed in our education system. Unfortunately, I'm looking at a host of homeschoolers. Now, not everybody can homeschool. But one thing you can do when you're a homeschooler, when you homeschool, let me put it that way, you control it. And you can teach them not only facts, but how to think. You can teach them that the, the starting point in everything is God and His Word. Now, that's where you start, and then you can branch out from there. And show them how to correlate the things that are happening in their lives with what the Bible is revealing. And then you've got something. You're starting on how to think. Now, Joshua chapter 2. Just had to get that out. I guess I'll put the notes on for everybody to see for a while. The book of Joshua is written in logical order, but not in chronological order. Important. What we're seeing in chapter 2 takes place before what happens in chapter 1. This chapter takes up about four days, and this was the first thing that Joshua did after receiving the commission from the Lord to conquer the land. So let's read it. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies, uh, excuse me, two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Wow, that is loaded. You don't see it, do you? There are so many questions here that need to be answered. The first one is, well, wait a minute. What is Joshua doing sending spies out to the land? Didn't God say he was going to give him the land to go over there and possess it and take it? Yes. And so he sends spies over there? Isn't that a lack of faith? No. That's what we're going to look at first. First of all, it was God who commanded Moses to send out 12 spies into Canaan. Remember that? Joshua happened to be one of them. So if, if it's good enough for God, shouldn't it be good enough for Joshua to send spies out to see what the territory is all about? It was a smart and prudent thing to do. There's an old saying, an old adage, know your enemy. No military leader in his right mind would send his troops out into battle without uh, doing a recognizance of the area. Bush in his work notes on Joshua said, now this is not either one of the George Bushes that said this, by the way. Um, I can't remember what Bush it was, but it wasn't either one of them. 
I got this from uh, Charlie Clough had some notes on this, and I got this from his notes, and I don't have a footnote, but that's okay. The certainty of a promised issue does not supersede the use of the prudent means and the attempts to accomplish it. To neglect the use of appropriate means is to contravene the established order of divine counsel. Faith never precludes effort. See, the problem is a lot of people want to have the Lord give them divine guidance and they'll ask the Lord something. Uh, a family may be shopping for a new house. And they say, okay, Lord, we're looking for a new house. Uh, we pray that you give us the right house. And that's as far as it goes. They don't research the, uh, the ads and see where the best neighborhood is. Uh, they don't do any research with regards to who lived there before. They don't get anything with regards to the, how solid the house was built. They don't do anything. They just sit there and say, okay. They go to the want ads and they go, that one. Okay, we'll go to that one. And they go there. And they say, this must be it. I asked the Lord to help me. This must be the right one. How foolish is that? And yet that's the way a lot of people think. They think, once I ask the Lord to do something, or if the Lord tells me something in His Word, there's no effort on my part. I am to just sit back and let Him drop it in my lap. What if you're out of a job? I'm out... Lord, I'm out of a job. I'm unemployed. Will you help me find a job? I need, and not only do I need a job, I need the right job. Okay, thank you, Lord. Bye. Then what? Sit on the front porch and wait for someone to come into your neighborhood? Come up to your house and ring the doorbell? And say, you know what? I'm looking for a computer designer about your age. Are you a computer designer? Yes. What, are you, what age are you? Well, I'm, I'm 40. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, we would like to give you a job. That's what they think is going to happen. Does that make sense? Wouldn't you be putting out your resumes and you'd be checking on wherever you can get a job? By the way, this hits home for a lot of people. Even some in this church are unemployed. And I know you'd like to get a job in the area of your expertise. You'd like to get a job that is commensurate with the pay scale that you are used to. But if it's not there, it's not there. Get a job, whether it's picking up the trash, digging a ditch, anything that is honorable labor and bring in some bucks. There are some who will say, oh, well, no, I, that's not for me. I'm in the computer field and I am not in the burger flipping business. Well, you better be. What happens a lot of times is these people will depend on others to support them because they're too arrogant or too ignorant to take whatever job it takes in order to put food on the table. First Thessalonians, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's another issue. Uh-oh, there's a star. Look at that. Come on now. There you go. So, sending spies to Jericho was an act of wisdom by Joshua, not unbelief. If he was going to take this fortress, he needed to know details such as how many gates were in the walls surrounding it, how many towers, how many troops, and what was the morale like. 
In fact, we have in Proverbs 20:18, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Whatever you do, get the information. Do your homework. Just don't just stumble into something. And so the two spies, you know, these two spies had to be something else because remember the river was flooded probably about a mile wide. They probably had to go up north to swim across. Their very lives were at stake. And they just didn't go across the, into the other side and pick a few grapes and say, yeah, this is a great place and go back and tell Joshua, yeah, it's great. Look at these grapes. He needed specifics. That meant they had to go into the city, especially Jericho, and they had to find out what was going on to give Joshua the information. Yeah, but didn't God say He was going to give him the land? Yes, but God expects us to use what we have. He's not going to do everything for you. Okay, let's look at verse 1 again. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent the two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go to the land, especially Jericho. Now, I have a few facts with regards to um, Shittim. I'm looking to see if anybody's giggling. Okay. Y'all passed. So, um, now, before we look at Shittim in detail, we're going to look at why he did it secretly. Why did he send the spies secretly? Well, of course, you'd want to send them secretly because you didn't want the word to get out to the enemy that there were going to be spies going on there and they, w- they would be the alert- on the alert. That's one reason. But another reason is, and this shows how pragmatic, how practical Joshua was. He knew that when they sent the spies out the first time, the 12 spies, everybody knew about it. And so when they came back and they had a report that sounded scary, what did the people do? They all had a big meltdown. And so when the spies came back, not even the Jews knew that he had sent the spies. So they would come back and report privately to him what the, what the conditions were so that if it was a bad report that, that uh, the people wouldn't have a meltdown. By the way, it was in Numbers chapter 13, 1 through 14, 4, where at Kadesh Barnea where the spies were sent out and they came back and the people had a meltdown. That's why he did it as uh, secretly. Now let's look at this. Um, boy, we're off on the left a little bit here, aren't we? Um, Shittim is a Hebrew word for acacia trees, a place in Moab where the Israelites stopped during their wilderness journeys. This is in Numbers 33:49, And where they were drawn into Moabite worship of Baal of Peor in Numbers 25:1. Shittim was the last stopping place east of the Jordan. I got that from the Erdman's Bible Dictionary. Now, at Shittim, Balak, uh, Balak of Moab attempted to thwart the Israelite penetration of Canaan by hiring Balaam to curse the people. Numbers 22 through 24. Do you remember that? 
Balaam was hired to curse the Jews, but Balaam was a believer, so when he tried to curse, God wouldn't let him do it. And Balak had a cow because he had already paid him, and it, it, oh, it was a real fiasco. That happened at Chittim. Apparently incited by the uh, uh, Balaam's counsel, Israel played the harlot with women from Midian and Moab, Numbers 25, 1 through 5, and you can confer with uh, Numbers 31, 15 through 16, where, again, in Shittim, you had a problem. By the way, we have a corollary to that in the New Testament. The Israelites were commanded not to take wives of the nations, of the Gentiles, of the pagans, and so forth. Why? Because they would turn their head away from God. That's what happened to Solomon. And nobody overdid it like Solomon. When you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's beyond the pale of not being obedient. And they did. They turned his head away from, uh, from God. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're told that uh, we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, that's not 1 Corinthians 9. Anyway, it's there. We're not to do it, period. So if you young people or even old people, old people date too, some of them. Probably old people date and young people don't. They just hang out. I don't know what they do these days. They just kind of, they're there. They show up and they're together. And if everything goes good, they don't only hang up, they hook up. And after they hook up, they move in. That's society today. So they had a problem with uh, marrying the pagans. Israel's apostasy, participating in idolatrous rites and engaging in, engaging in ritual prostitution, was punished by God with a plague at Peor. So even when they do that, God isn't going to say, hmm, well, people look like they're going to hell in a handbasket. Too bad. He takes care of it. I don't know how many thousands died in this plague. Uh, and that is found in Numbers 25, 1 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 8 is mentioned. While encamped at Shittim, Joshua was publicly proclaimed as Moses' successor, Numbers 27, 18 through 22. Um, before we go to Jericho, because Jericho is mentioned in this, there's quite a bit of interesting information about Jericho, but where are these places? Can we find them? Can I bring them up on this machine? Ah, okay. Here is a map of the area. Here, you have Shittim, see it right here? And here you have Jericho. This is the Jordan River going through it. And they were going to cross. They, they were going to move up. First he sent the spies, and they went over there and did their deal and came back and reported. Then we have Joshua moving them up to the river, and they're going to wait three days, and then they are going to cross. Now, here's something. I don't have much time left, but I want to get this in because there, there may be somebody here that won't come back, doesn't come back, whatever it may be. And you need to know, understand this. What is God's direction for you? What are you to do? Where are you to go? What are you to say? These types of things. Well, I'm talking about divine guidance. Joshua had a mandate from God. 
cross the river, go over and take the land. But he also had a problem. The river was impassable. Now, he did everything he could, get reconnaissance, do everything in order to be successful in obeying what God said to do. But they, he hit a, a brick wall. He hit a pro, an area where he could not do anything about it. There was a river maybe a mile wide, and they didn't have boats, and they didn't have bridges. They couldn't swim it. But God said, cross it. So what was he to do? He brought the people right to the river, and then he waited. And he implored God, I want to do what you say. I brought the people here. I've done the reconnaissance. I've done everything that I know to do, but now I've hit a brick wall. He waited, he prayed to God and waited for God to do what he couldn't do. And God will always do that. He will do what you can't do when you are trusting him and you're moving out. Joshua said, in three days we're going to cross the river. Now God told him to cross, he didn't tell him when. Joshua did everything in his power to make the right decision to be obedient. But this is the critical juncture right here. In all of our lives, we're going to be in that situation where we do everything we can. We've been illuminated by the Word. We know what to do. And we are submissive. We want to do it. But there is an impossible structure in front of us, whether it's visible or invisible. In Joshua's case, it was visible. So what did he do? He waited. And then he told the priest, take the Ark of the Covenant, Go in that direction till you hit water. What happened when they touched water? God did His part. You know, we can't, we can't do the impossible. God doesn't ex- expect us to. But He expects us to, first of all, gain all the knowledge that we can of knowing what He wants us to do doing everything physically possible that we can do to bring it about, and then trust Him to do what we can't do. That's where the faith comes in. That's where you exercise your faith. I'm going to expand on that more next time. When we get to Rahab, we haven't even started talking about Rahab. Rahab is one of, one of, if not the most honored woman, women in the Bible. Unbelievable how much honor she receives in the Bible and what she did. Most people don't have a clue where she was, what she did. Do you know that she was a believer before the spies even got there? And why did they wind up at her house? And her house was a house of prostitution. She was a whore. And yet God led these spies to her. She was a believer. God takes care of His own. Nothing happens by accident. There are so many wonderful things to learn. In just this first verse, I have other uh, maps I was going to show you. I got one from a satellite. I was very proud of that. I even got one on Google Earth where you can just like an airplane, you can go all over. But um, I don't know how to get it on here. It's probably just as well because probably wouldn't work and we'd crash somewhere. 
Our God is great and He is telling us how great He is, how faithful He is, and He can take care of whatever your issue is. This is what we're seeing in the first verse of the second chapter. We just got a dose of authority. It's like taking paragarch. Y'all don't know what paragarch is? Paragarch is a medicine that tastes so ghastly that when I was a little boy, when I needed to throw up, my mother would give me paragarch. And when you swallowed it, it was coming up. I mean, it, it, paragarch. I mean, it even sounds horrible. If you smell it, you just gag. But paragarch is not the issue. Authority was the issue, remember? Everybody's going to go home. Well, what was the lesson about? Oh, it was about paragarch. <laughs> I am so happy to be teaching about Rahab because I didn't know all this about Rahab. She is the only woman mentioned in Hebrews 11 about what she did. Now, Sarah was mentioned in the sense that she, she had a baby. She, had, she was barren and so forth. She is highly exalted, a prostitute in the line of Christ. There's a lot to learn about Rahab. We'll go over that next time. I would like everyone please to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to close this service and dedicate it to anyone that might be here that is not sure where they go after they die. Surely they must realize that they are going to die if Jesus Christ tarries. And I'm going to give the best news that anyone has ever heard, and that is Jesus Christ took care of your sin problem. You don't have to worry about being good enough to go to heaven. No one is good enough to go to heaven, nor can they be. That's why God offers eternal salvation, eternal life as a gift based on one thing, that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did. He is the Son of God. He went to the cross. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again and now offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. Now, maybe you have trusted Him and you're just not really sure that it took. Well, you can know that you're saved according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. It's all based on believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do it right now if you haven't done it before by simply trusting Him and not your own works for eternal salvation. Now, Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. We revel in Your Word. We joy in Your Word. It gives us what nothing else can, that confidence and courage and hope. We pray that You will help us to meditate upon these things and employ them in our life. For we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.